0: That's not what I'm going to do right now. Right now, I I wanted to spend a few weeks on just some of the foundations of kashos. Now I know that obviously anyone that's trying to keep kosher knows the basic laws of kashos, but sometimes people don't understand uh, the principles of it. So I'm here not so much to go over detail, 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 which you will get in your practical classes, but more to understand the structural principles. So once you understand the structural principles, uh, you can get a test and you can be ordained and so as a rabbi, that's basically uh, good, good, good deal. <laughs> no, no, unfortunately, probably not. But I, I don't know. Uh, but basically, you know, the basic smicha, the basic ordination that's given is not only on kashris, but kashrus is a huge, huge part of uh, the a smicha curriculum. So it's something that uh, people spend a lot of time on uh, when, they're, when they want to get ordained or, or, or the like. Uh, but as I say, my emphasis is going to be on, on principles and uh, the, the general idea of kashrut is stated in the Torah itself. It is a way of being holy. In fact, in the Rambam, the Rambam divides all of the laws in 14 books. This is his famous I know Chabad is very big in learning the Rambam, now... Uh, the Rambam wrote two things. One is a short book called Sefer HaMitzvos that briefly describes each of the 613 mitzvos. It's not that short, but uh, compared to the other one, it's short. The other is called the Mishnah Torah, the repetition of the Torah, which goes over all of the halachot in great, great, great detail. Now, the Mishnah Torah is much earlier than the Shulchan Aruch. But it's much more complete, because you see the Shulchan Aruch only contains laws that apply today. So in the Shulchan Aruch, you'll not, you will not find the laws of sacrifices, the laws of building the Beis HaMikdash and the like. In the, in the Rambam's Mishneh Torah, you have absolutely every single law of, uh, that's in the Talmud and, and the like. In fact, the reason why he called this book Mishneh Torah is because it's the second Torah, meaning, he said, all you need is a Chumash for the written Torah, and all the laws that are in the Talmud, you can get from him without looking at all the discussions. He was criticized for that, because some people said, oh, he's trying to take people away from Talmud by just giving them the bottom line. All right, That's a whole interesting machlogis. But as uh, you know, those of you that uh, are familiar with Chabad know, uh, the Rebbe uh, very much pushed people to learn the Rambam, because he said that most people are not able to know the whole Talmud. The whole Talmud is huge, but if you know the Rambam, which is pretty big too, but much smaller than the Talmud, you will actually know all of the laws of the Torah. So he encouraged people to learn Rambam, which had not been done that much uh, before. People always consult Rambam, Any anyone who studies Gemara is looking at Rambam all the time, but to simply go in order was not a common thing. The Rebbe encouraged it, uh, so if you're super-duper good and you do three chapters a day, which is very, very hard, you can actually finish the whole Rambam in a year. Uh, if you do it one chapter a day, you can finish it in three years, even one chapter. It's, it's really, it's not its not as easy as it may sound. Uh, and uh, for other people who were not able to do a Rambam, it's too dense, the safer Hamitzvos was suggested, I think, for Often for women, he recommended Sefer mitzvos, or people who were not learned in Talmud also uh, would do Sefer HaMitzvos. That way, you're not getting all the laws, but you're at least getting uh, the, the mitzvos, the basic mitzvos under which all the laws are grouped. Now, the Rambam, uh, the Mishnah Torah is divided into 14 books. Each of them is given its own distinct name. Uh, and the book that discusses the laws of kashrus is called Sefer HaKidusha, the Book of Holiness, because kashrut is specifically linked with being holy. Why is that so? Because holiness is the capacity of the Jew to sanctify every part of his being, even the animal soul, even the animal passions, even the animal desires. And eating is one of the great functions that we share in common with animals. So by definition, it's very animalistic. But when we eat, according to the laws of kashrus, and we make brachos, and we thank Hashem before and after we eat, and then we have kavanah, that when we eat, we're trying to be healthy so we can serve Hashem and do mitzvahs, what we've done is we've elevated the animalistic action of eating and we've turned it into something holy and that's a very important principle in Judaism that even the physical can be elevated and sanctified instead of looking at physicality as something bad we look at it as essentially neutral uh, you can be like an animal or you can elevate it and sanctify it and make it holy now based on what I said there are actually two topics that the Rambam covers in Sefer Hakadusha one is kashras And what do you think the other one would be, based on the same idea of elevating the animalistic function? The laws of sexual relations, the laws of of, of forbidden uh, relationships. Because once again, the common denominator is, these are things we share in common with animals. And yet, by doing it within a sanctified union, by eating properly, we can even make that holy, and we make ourselves holy. So... Kashrus is all about kiddusha because Kashras is all about kiddusha then technically kashras should kick in as soon as a baby is born and even before a baby is born meaning let's say shabbos for example if my one-year-old wants to turn on a light on shabbos i don't have to stop him he has to reach a certain age where he understands things that's called chino right in other words uh If a one-year-old is fooling around now, it may not be right for me as a parent. Let's say I want the light to be all turned on. So sometimes people just carry their baby over. That's not right, because you, you shouldn't use your child like a Shabbos guy. In fact, you shouldn't even use a Shabbos guy like a Shabbos guy. So I'm not talking about the parent is using the child to do forbidden work. But if the child on his own is fooling around and the child is very, very young, you don't have to stop him. You don't have to stop him. It's only when he reaches he or she reaches a certain age, and that age depends on the child's mental development. But typically, five or six, you start telling a child. Now, many people start earlier, but that's where you have to do it. But when it comes to kashrus, you don't want to give your child non-kosher food from the moment that he's born, because kashrus is not only a sin. Because if it if the only thing would be a sin, so hey, he's like he's a kid that he's not yet responsible for sins. But kashrus or violation of kashras is—it uh, it creates like a blockage of the heart. It makes it harder to connect to Hashem, uh, and uh, that is why uh, the minhag of uh, all religious people is to be very careful about kashras, even in baby formula and everything else. Now. If there is no kosher baby formula you can get, so it's a matter of life and death, so uh, you could feed an infant, which you have to feed, but you try very hard to uh, have kosher uh, food in in the house. Uh, Now, I know that that may may make people a little upset because they might say, oh gee, um, maybe I didn't keep kosher for so many years, like am I doomed? Well, the answer is, uh, to be totally honest, A person who didn't keep kosher is at a certain disadvantage, but, 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 everything can be overcome with tshuva. So it's going to be a little harder, but with tshuva, Hashem puts you all the way where you have to be. So nobody is at a permanent disadvantage, but sometimes we may have to work a little harder to to achieve the level that we're able to achieve. So kashris is a very, very big uh, deal, and it's one of the most conspicuous signs of being a Jew. You know, I keep kosher. Now, some people say they keep kosher at home and not uh, outside. Uh, so some people, whatever it is, different different types of rules. Some people will not eat ham, but they'll eat, uh, you know, beef that's not kosher. Well, in truth, uh, it is actually better to eat non-kosher beef than to eat ham. That, that is true, but they're still, they're both available, and therefore you have to avoid it. So, let's go over a few terms. I want to introduce a little vocabulary, some of this might be familiar to you. Um, There are three types of animals that are not kosher. Type one is called behema temeya. That means the species itself is not kosher. The species is not kosher. So, that would include, of course, the pig, and many others. And here, you know the basic signs. The basic signs that make a land animal kosher mm-hmm. is it has to have split hooves and chew its cud. You know what chew its cud? I mean, I'm sure you know. But a lot of people know the phrase chew its cud. They don't know what chew its cud actually means. So, just in case you don't know, if any of you have never been on a farm or whatever, uh, the way cows uh, eat is they eat grass. They have four stomachs. They eat grass, and it goes into stomach number one, and it gets pulverized a little bit, and then they regurgitate it into their mouth again, and they chew it over again, and then it goes into stomach number two. In other words, so chewing your cud means it regurgitates into the mouth, because grass is very hard to digest. If you've ever had grass, you'll see it is very, very hard to break it down. So it has to go up, up through the stomach, and then up again, So, chewing its cud and having split hooves. So, an animal that has one sign and not the other is trafe. So, some animals have split hooves, but they don't chew their cud. Other animals chew their cud and don't have split hooves. Now, it's very, very interesting that you would think that the worst treif animal is something that doesn't have anything, meaning it doesn't chew its cut and it doesn't have hoofs. But indeed, everybody knows that the worst treif animal is called the pig, the chazer. <clears throat> but the chazer is actually 50% kosher. A chazer does have split hoofs, but it doesn't chew its cut. So why is the chazer so bad? Because it's a hypocrite. It looks kosher on the outside and it's treif on the inside. Meaning, an animal that doesn't have split hoofs is at least an honest trafe animal, a horse. A horse is honest. A horse's hooves are not split like that. So the horse says, I'm trafe. you can ride me, you know, don't eat me. But the pig kind of says, hey, you know, I look kosher. So that's a very interesting chazal, that uh, the, the, the chazer is the hypocrite, because it shows it's split hoofs. So that's called me. tumea. to means an impure animal. That simply means animals that the very species is not kosher. Now, some animals might be kosher, you wouldn't even realize it. So obviously everybody knows sheep, everyone knows goats, everyone knows cows. But you know, a giraffe is a kosher animal. A giraffe is kosher. A gir- now, giraffe has split hoofs. <coughs> a giraffe uh, chews its cud. Now, a lot of people think, oh, but a giraffe is not kosher because you don't know where to shecht it. The answer is you do know where to shecht it. If it has a long neck, you can shecht it anywhere on its neck. <laughs> <laughs> so a giraffe can be shechted, but it's extremely dangerous to do that, and the meat is very tough, so it's not, you know, it's not recommended. There's no reason why you'd want to eat giraffe meat, but technically it is. It is kosher. But if it's a non-kosher species, so again, so for land animals, what makes it kosher are the two signs, splitting a hoof, chewing cut. Now, what about for fish? Fish has a different set of signs. Fish are scales, right, scales that you peel off, and fins. The fins are the thing that propels it in the water. So that is why... Shellfish, typically, is treif, right? Shellfish, because shellfish, like oysters, clams, uh, shrimp, do not have scales. Well, shrimp is not a shellfish, but shrimp do not have scales. Lobster does not have scales, right? That's why it's treif. Now, sometimes there's a big machlokas, swordfish. There were rabbis in the past, and the conservative rabbinate even today, but there were orthodox rabbis in the past who actually said swordfish was kosher because uh, the young swordfish does have scales that drop out as it grows up, and that was a machlokes, does that give it kosher status or the scales have to survive for adulthood? So that's why you'll occasionally see on different kashris lists that one kashris list, you have to know if the list is reliable, one kashris list will say that a certain fish is kosher, and one kosher list will say a certain fish is not kosher. So we know very clearly the signs for land animals and we know very clearly the signs for fish. What are the signs of kosher birds? So This is actually very, very fascinating. The Torah does not give you any signs for kosher birds. The way it works is the Torah enumerates uh, 20 or so birds that are not kosher and every other bird is kosher if it's not on that list meaning unlike animals and fish where the torah defines it by signs birds have a non-kosher list of 20 or 20 I think it's 22 and everything else is good so in theory if you knew your bird was not on the 22 bird list it would be kosher. The problem that the rabbis had already in the time of the Talmud is we don't know the exact translation. Even if you could look at it in English, but the English itself is questionable. We just don't know the exact translation of those birds. And therefore we never know what is a kosher bird unless we have a definitive tradition. And the essential tradition is that it has to be a non-predatory bird. You know, there's a bird that does not prey on other animals or other birds. So, for example, an eagle, a hawk, a falcon, a vulture, uh, even an owl. Owls are uh, predatory birds. These are not kosher because they are birds of prey. Uh, other types of birds that are not birds of prey are generally going to be going to be kosher. But again, this is simply a tradition that uh, that we have, and uh, the commentaries basically say that to some degree, the laws of kashrus generally means you never eat carnivorous animals. Because animals that chew their cud uh, eat also vegetation, grass or grain, because the idea is that what you, what you eat affects your character, right? You are what you eat. You eat animals that are cruel. You eat animals that are predatory. You eat animals that are scavengers. <clears throat> that has some type of impact on your nature. So you want to eat animals that are more naturally, gener- uh, more naturally gentle. I'm not sure if that ties in with fish, really, but, uh, but in terms of the land animals and in terms of the birds, all of them are non-predatory uh, creatures and the like. So all of that is the most familiar part of koshua, and that is certain species are kosher and certain species are not kosher. That's it, right? And you have to know uh, whether it's kosher or not kosher. Okay. Now, even here, there's some interesting questions because sometimes we have shyness about uh, the, uh, the products that are made from non-kosher animals. Uh, the outstanding example might be gelatin.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: now gelatin I I don't mean uh, artificial I mean real gelatin gelatin comes from collagen collagen is uh, a material in a bone and typically uh, it was made from pig bones they took the bones of pig they would boil it up till it got real real soft and then they would get this soft mushy thing from the bone and gelatin is used in a lot of products a lot of products, uh, whether it's ice cream, or Jello. Yeah, that's why Jello was called Jello because of the gelatin, chocolate, marshmallows. I had a lot of them, right? So the question is: It's true that Chazer is obviously not kosher, but is the gelatin from Chazer? Now let me explain what the issue is. The issue is that even non-kosher food. Parts of it that are inedible, parts that even a dog wouldn't eat, are no longer considered food. So those bones are dried out, and nobody, they're they're not edible, and even gelatin is not edible. Gelatin becomes an additive that you put in other food, but it itself is not edible. It's tasteless and the like. So interestingly enough, before, there's there's a history in the United States. Before World War II, Many Kashrus organizations certified gelatin products because they took the position that the pig bones, even though it's pig, the pig bones were not edible, and therefore they no longer had a kosher issue, and you're allowed to eat even though it came from a pig. Uh, and I remember I, I I would see I mean I remember seeing advertisements in old newspapers. For junket china, I don't know if they even make junket anymore, but it was a certain food, it was like a custard food made with gelatin that was certified kosher, as well as jello, regular, famous, famous jello, which was made with that type of gelatin and was certified as kosher. Now, after World War II, we had different rabbanim, different gadolim come to America. They had maybe stricter standards or or the like. And today, uh, no reputable kashris organization certifies animal gelatin uh, there's one exception the, the, the one. there's only one kosher organization that still holds out and that's the Massachusetts Vat which is an orthodox organization uh, in New England there's a bunch of ice cream parlors Friendly's Ice Cream anyone here from New England maybe you've heard of it so Friendly's ice cream is under the MVH, which is Massachusetts Valley Rabbinic. Uh, but I can't recommend it to you, because their ice cream does contain gelatin. And again, the MVH is not, you know, they're not fooling you. I mean, they they, they follow a psak that the gelatin is not subject to kosher laws. Uh, but most of rabbis today say that it is, so you shouldn't uh, rely on anything that uses gelatin now. So, what is the substitute for gelatin? So you have kosher marshmallows. Ice cream also has some gelatin type of thing. So the answer is, uh, they either use artificial gelatin, can be made chemically, or they use fish gelatin. You can make it from fish. And as long as the fish is kosher, you no, know, fish don't have to be shechted or anything like that, so fish gelatin will certainly not be a problem. Right? So gelatin was a major, major controversy. Now, I know that the M V H feels very strongly about this. There's a Rebbe in Arsameach who wrote a big, big book on Kashrus, very, very fine book. His name is Rabbi Spitz. And he has a whole big chapter on the history of the gelatin controversy. And I had written an introduction, endorsing the book, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, like, for a month, I and he and, like, everybody connected to the book were getting all sorts of emails, phone calls, attacks from the... Uh, some people in the MVH, that we were disparaging them and everything else. But, okay, you know, it was a machlogis. They took a certain position. But that was not the mainstream position. Okay. So that is Category 1, just called Behema tamea, Non-kosher species. Category 2 is called Nivela. Now, Nivela simply means an animal that died without being properly shechted. Which means, having a kosher animal isn't enough. If having a kosher animal be enough, then I should be able to buy chicken <laughs> or steak in any store that I want. Because steak is from a cow, so it's kosher, and chicken is from a chicken, which is kosher. But the answer is, it's not enough to be a kosher species. It has to be killed in a kosher way and the kosher way of killing an animal is called shechita and I'll talk about what that involves and any animal that died not through shechita whether it's roadkill, whether it's a sledgehammer, whatever it is, is called nevela. So technically, if I buy ham, I'm violating, I'm eating a behema temeya. If I buy steak, you know, from in a supermarket, I'm transgressing the Isser of nevela. <coughs> nevela just means an animal that did not die through shechita. Now, what is shechita? So shechita is uh, a ritual slaughter that uh, was given to Moshe at Har Sinai, and essentially, it involves a very, very, very sharp knife, a knife that has no nicks at all, because when you have a nick that could catch some of the animal's skin and that could cause pain, right? So Shita very, very makvit, not to cause any pain to the animal. So the blade is very sharp, and the way a shochet tests it is he runs his fingernail over the blade. And if it snags, not, not his, not his finger, but his fingernail, that's why a sometimes has Bit of a longer fingernail. He rubs it, and if it snags in any way, the knife has to be resharpened, and the like. So very, very sharp, sharp knife, and uh, the shechita is uh, a back and forth motion, meaning it's he doesn't press into the animal, but it's so sharp, right? When you have a very sharp knife, you can cut without pressing down. You just so, it's the underside. In other words, it's not the back of the, it's not the back of the animal's neck, because that will go through bone. Right? That would not be a kosher shchita. but the shchita is the fleshy part of the neck. It is a lateral motion, back and forth, very, very quick, and then the animal is shechted. Now, of course, there's all sorts of things you've got to do after shechita. You have to draw, drain away the blood, salting, we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But, uh, if the shechita was not done, or even if it was done, but it wasn't kosher, let's assume he pressed down. If the shechit applies any pressure upwards or downwards, that's an invalid shechita, and the animal is a nivella. So any if the shechita is not proper, it is a nivella. It is no better than a sledgehammer or anything else. Now, yeah? <coughs> I
1: parse, like there's a cover the, the do they do that every time, they
0: Okay, so let me talk about that. There, there is a mitzvah to cover the blood with sawdust, but that only applies to birds or wild animals like deer. So it does not apply to to cows or goats or sheep. But it is true that in chicken slaughtering, uh, they cover the blood. They don't, they don't do it after every chicken. Uh, basically, they'll do it like every half an hour. Yeah, you have to know the way modern. In fact, it is a big problem actually. Today, because of assembly lines, a typical shokheit might shecht a hundred chickens an hour or more. And if he takes (laughs) his time, uh, he gets screamed at. I mean, the bosses really, they have to do it real, really fast. And that's why no shokheit works more than two hours. I I think it's two hours on, one hour off. Because it's very, very, very hard work. First of all, it's very hard work. Uh, the temperature is very cold because they have to keep it cold so the meat doesn't spoil, whatever it is. Uh, and you can't wear gloves for the shechita because you have to, kind of, your hands have to be uh, sensitive. So uh, really, and that's why a lot of shoklen retire early because of medical disabilities. It is not an easy line of work at all. Uh, so they work no more than two hours and then they take an hour off. But in those two hours, they got to shack like more than 100 per hour. So they can't possibly stop and cover the blood. There's an assembly line. There's a, it's coming down a, a line. So I think every half an hour or so, they take a bunch of sawdust and they throw it on the, they throw it on the blood. But again, that's only for chickens, or if you're shechting deer, <laughs> you would do it like that, or a giraffe, <laughs> for that matter. Uh, do kizan, but, but you don't do it for cows, sheep, or or goats. Okay, so that's called nevela. Now there's a third thing that's called trefa. Now this is interesting. Colloquially, we call anything not kosher, we call it trafe. That's colloquial. So we'll say meat milk is trafe and we'll say pig is trafe and we'll say a steak from the supermarket that's not kosher is trafe. And, and that's colloquial, so you know you can keep on talking that way. I mean, I talk that way; that's perfectly fine. But technically, trefa has a very specific meaning in the Torah. Trefa literally means something that was torn apart by another animal. So, if an animal was attacked by a lion or something, that animal that was attacked is called a trefa. Now, Chazal then generalized the definition, and they said that even a kosher animal that has a defect, has a tear, a rip, a perforation, a puncture in a vital organ cannot be eaten even if it is shechted properly. So what Trefa means in modern halacha is animals that have punctures, tears, rips in Vital organs cannot be eaten even if they're a kosher animal like a cow and even if they're shechted properly. That's called a trefa. Now, a vital organ would include things like lungs, kidneys, stomach, esophagus, trachea, brain. So, here's the thing. There are like 80 different places that theoretically could make an animal a trefa. But halacha is very amazing here. Halacha says, since any of those problems are very, very rare, halacha does not require you to check for them. There's only one thing that has to be checked because problems are frequent, and that is the lungs. So, although, theoretically, there could be trefa problems in kidneys, in liver, in brain, in esophagus, in trachea, we do not... Sh- so, if you know there's a problem, then it's trepha. But we, do not, we don't have to check for that. But we do have to check in lungs, because lungs often have perforations or tears. And therefore, right after an animal is shechted, Either the shochet himself or another person called a bodek—a bodek means a checker—will put his hand in and feel the lung for any perforation and the like. Very quick. I mean, if you know how to do it, which I don't really, but if you know how to do it, it's a relatively quick process. Now, so that's why when a person is certified to be a shochet, his official certification says shochet u bodek. A slaughterer and an inspector. Inspector meaning, because the, 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 you know you can't just say I just want to be a shochet and not an inspector. So you get certified to be a, sh- a slaughterer and a bodek, and that's often abbreviated. You'll see it in Sifrei Halacha: Shin Vav Beis, Shochet u Bodek. Okay, that's the official title of a of a shochet. Uh, but again, as I say. Um, Theoretically, if you knew there was a perforation in the stomach, the animal would be a traitor. It's just we don't have to check because that's uncommon.
1: Yeah? Um, Just to clarify, fish don't have to be...
0: Right, all right, so that's very important. Fish don't need anything, meaning fish don't have to be shechted. You just catch them from the sea.
1: So you could go to, like, a local
0: fish? Yes, you can, but but the problem is this. The problem with fish is this. Uh, The fish itself, if it has scales and fins, it didn't have to be shechted. There's not even trefa, even if there was Mm -hmm. some hole in something, that wouldn't affect it at all. But the problem is, if it's a fish store that also sells non-kosher fish. So you got a problem that it's on the same cutting board, the same knives. So what some people do, and this is allowed, you can bring, if you bring your own cutting board, your own kosher cutting board, Mm. and your own knife and you ask the guy, you want him to cut up the tuna, cut up the salmon, on your cutting board with your knife, you can do that, you can go to any fish store and do that. But there's gonna be a problem when they're cutting it on their cutting board and their knives, because not everything is washed well. We'll talk about that, so that's really the problem. So it's, the problem is not the fish, the problem is the other things, the trafe stuff that the fish might get in contact, contact with. Now. This idea that even after you shekht, you got to check for trefa, at least on the lungs, gives rise to two very interesting issues. I'm now going to explain what is glat kosher, right? You sometimes see there is kosher and there is glat kosher. Or in Hebrew, in Israel, the way it's called is kashrut rigila, which means regular kosher, and chalak, smooth. It's just another word for... glat in Yiddish is the word for chalak, smooth. So what is that? What is that? What is galak? Smooth? So let me explain the issue. The shochet, or, 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 or the bodek, whoever is doing it, after shechita, has to check the lung for things. Now, if the lung has a hole, no question, the animal is a treva. But often you're not going to find a hole in the lung. But what you're going to find is adhesions on the surface of the lung. Remember, if you know how a lung looks, a human lung, but an animal lung is kind of the same. There are different tubes that branch off, but sometimes there'll be adhesive tissue in which the tubes are linked together. Now, adhesions alone are not a problem, but let me explain the problem. But the problem is, how did you get an adhesion? There must have been a leak, a leak in the lung that poured out some liquid that solidified. So there's always a fear that whenever there's an adhesion, which in Hebrew called the sircha, there may be a nekev under the sircha, meaning a nekev, there may be a hole under the sircha that would make an animal a trefa. So in regular kosher, what they do is this. If they find an adhesion, they try to scrape it off very gently till they get to the lung tissue, and then, like a backpipe, they put the lung under water, I wouldn't want to do this, and, and they blow, in other words, uh, they put the lung underwater and they blow a pipe, and if there's any hole in the lung, there'll be a bubble. So, what they do is, if they blow and there's no bubble, they conclude there's no hole, and they'll certify it as kosher. That's regular kosher. And as regular kosher says, we scrape away the sircha and we do a bubble test. Galat kosher says, if we find sircha, we certify it as trafe. we don't, we sell it to the guy. We don't uh, market it as kosher, meaning so essentially, something that's galat, literally means, it is sircha, remember sircha means adhesion, it is sircha free which means you don't have any problem that maybe there's a hole under the adhesion. If it's kashrut regila, there could have been sirchot, and they were scraped away, and they did a test. So, so it's interesting how things have changed. Um, before World War II, most kosher observant Jews in America, not Orthodox Jews, ate regular kosher meat. Glot was not a common thing glots became more and more popular with Hasidim, so not only Chabad, but Satmer, meaning... When Hasidim came in large numbers after World War II, they insisted on a Galat standard of kosher. And I have to say that today, uh, uh, Galat has almost become the standard. There are probably... I'm I'm not sure, but there there may be more Orthodox Jews who keep Galat kosher than keep regular kosher. Regular kosher is just... uh, Regular kosher might be conservative, Reform Jews might keep that, but uh, most Orthodox Jews follow Galat. But Galat started off as a chumrah, uh, you know, as an extra stringency, but it came, it became very, very, very accepted. But now you know what Galat is. Galat basically means that the lungs, it's only going on the lungs, nothing else. The lungs don't have any adhesions, and therefore there's no reason to suspect any nekif, any hole uh, in it and the like. Now, the truth of the matter is, Some people say that glots, by definition, cannot be what it says it is. There may be false advertising here, because they estimate that sirchas are so common, adhesions are so common in lungs, that no more than 15% of animals can be free of adhesions. 85% of animals are going to have adhesions. Now, the problem with that is, more than 15% of the kosher meat that is sold is labeled as glott. So I don't want to scare anybody, but basically that would almost certainly mean that a lot of meat that is labeled glott may not be glott. But, as uh, people sometimes say, well... If it's certified glat, then at least you know it's kosher. If it's certified kosher, (coughs) who knows? So, glat does mean there was a stricter supervision overall. So, okay, if it's not glat, you know, I know it's kosher. Okay, again, you know, talk to your local rabbi about uh, this and that, but I just want you to understand what is glat kosher and why uh, it applies only to lungs connected to sirka. Now, what's interesting is there is no such thing, therefore, as glot kosher milchiks because it's only an issue in dairy. And there's also no such thing as glot kosher chicken because by chicken, for various reasons, all chickens are glot, meaning all chickens are sircha-free. If there's any sircha in a chicken, we don't, no, nobody will certify it as kosher. Therefore, the distinction in chicken between regular kosher and glot kosher is non-existent because all kosher chicken will meet the definition of glot. So if somebody tries to sell you a glott kosher chicken, uh, you could try to sell them a, a bridge in Brooklyn, as they say. Uh, there is no such thing. Well, actually, I should, I should say it the other way. I was going to say there is no such thing as a glatt kosher chicken. I would say there's no such thing as a kosher chicken that's not glatt. OK. Now, there was another interesting issue, though. I just mentioned that this issue of checking for perforations is only done for the lung. But if you know there's a problem, you have to be kosher. Let me tell you about a very interesting issue that arose uh, around 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago. And that is, when an animal is a trefa, not only can you not eat the meat, but the milk of an animal that's a trefa is not kosher. Now, you may ask a question, well, then how can I ever drink milk? I mean, I don't know... I mean, the animal hasn't undergone an x-ray. I I get milk, I get milk. Well, maybe the animal had a a hole in its stomach or whatever it is. So the answer is, Halacha says you're allowed to assume that most animals don't have these problems. Okay, And therefore, the whole heter of milk is based on an assumption. But if you knew that the animal had a perforation, you could not drink milk from that animal. So, here's the interesting thing. One of the problems that cows suffer from is extreme gas, extreme bloat. Why do cows have this big digestive problem? Because a cow's natural diet is, is uh, grass. But because we like to fatten up cows real quick, so instead of giving them grass, we give them grain. But grain, even though people like to boast, right, the beef, grain-fed cattle. Yeah. But grain is actually not the best food for a cow. And therefore, cows have digestive problems. They have bloat. They have gas. In fact, uh, they say a lot of global warming, climate change, is caused because of bovine expulsion of gas (laughs) and the like. So it's not so much uh, factories that do it. It's the the cows themselves uh, create it. So what do we do for our poor cow that's <laughs> suffering from bloats? So there actually is a veterinary procedure in which they use, I mean the, closest, the best way to describe it is a gigantic stapler. Oh. They basically punch a hole in the stomach, all this gas comes out, and then they take a gigantic, imagine a gigantic cow stapler, and they staple. It's under anesthesia, so the cow kind of oh, okay. right, They staple the cow's stomach. Now, here's the problem. When you make a hole in the animal's stomach, the animal is a trefa. At that point, not only is the animal not kosher for eating when you shaft it, if you sheft it, actually it's a dairy cow, so they're probably not going to sheft it, but the milk is traifa. So, the problem was around 20 years ago, 15 years ago, I don't remember exactly, Rabbanim became aware that many cows, their stomach is punctured to let out the gas. So does that make all the milk and the ice cream and the cottage cheese? Everything, even under the best supervision. Because this is required by the Department of Agriculture. You can't just say, I'm going to raise my cows uh, without this operation. This operation is required by law. So this was a huge question which has huge repercussions, meaning are you allowed to have milk and dairy and whatever it would be? So La Misa, the debate was that even though it's true that when you puncture the animal it's a trefa, but maybe when you staple it, you repair the damage. that's, That's the question. Can a trefa be a repairable situation? Meaning, do you say once a trefa, always a trefa? Or... You know, it became a trefer because of a puncture, but we repaired the puncture, so that would, that would take off, right? So that was one big issue, which involved not lungs. Glot kosher involves lungs. This actually involved the stomachs of a ruminant uh, for bloat and the like. But that is why the truth of the matter is that uh, grass-fed uh, cows are healthier cows. Uh, they say the taste... Is more gamey, so to speak, beating uh, whatever, whatever you know, it's uh, more of a rough taste. It's not as smooth as grain-fed, but it's actually much more healthier for the uh, for the cow.
1: Does, do grass-fed cows undergo this procedure also? They don't
0: have to, because uh, the bloat, yeah, bloat comes from the difficulty the cow has to digest grain. Right? So we think grain is better. The truth is, grain is not not better for a cow. Grass is better for a cow. Okay. Alrighty. So we talked about uh, three terms. We talked about Behema Temea, We talked about nivela. We talked about Trefa, and in Trefa, we talked about galak kosher, as well as the uh, problem of the esoph- of the uh, not the esophagus of the stomach being punctured uh, to let out uh, to let out gas. Now let me mention another yet another uh, two kind of miscellaneous rules about. Uh, kosher meat and kosher animals. Uh, one is called Aver Minhachai. Now, Aver Minhachai is not something you're likely to face that much, but that means a limb that was severed from an animal, or even meat. Meat that was severed from an animal while it was still alive uh, can never be eaten, even if the animal is shechted. So, an example would be that. Let's assume that I would cut off a piece of meat from a live animal, and then I would check the animal. That piece of meat that I cut off cannot be eaten because of Avram and Achai. Now, you're going to say, that sounds barbaric. Who would ever do it? The truth is, many, many civilizations used to do this because the meat was fresher that way, meaning the meat is so fresh, I got it when the animal was alive, you know, etc. So Avram and Achai is something to keep in mind. But... Interestingly enough, although the classic Avermanachai seems so primitive that no normal person would do it, interestingly enough, it has come back in modern guise in laboratory created meat. Okay? What is this issue of laboratory created meat? We're not talking, I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, we're not talking about soy burgers or whatever it is. I mean, we've had that type of artificial meat for a really long time, right? That's part of soy burger, whatever, tofu. We're not talking about that. We're talking about real meat, but the meat was grown in a laboratory. How does that work? Uh, you have an animal, and let's, it's a kosher animal. You have a, a cow, let's say a cow, right? And you take some cells from the cow, and then in a Petri dish, you provide it with nutrients, and those cell lines can keep on growing. So from 10 cells, you get 100, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, a 1 million, 10, 10 million, you need, quite, you need quite a lot. But over time, the enough cells turn into muscle fibers. Enough fibers turn into meat. You can make a laboratory hamburger. You can make a laboratory steak. This is a technology that's already being done, but it's not really for commercial use yet, but it's coming, coming up pretty soon. Right now, I think, a uh, uh, hamburger costs like $5,000 to make, so most people aren't gonna spend $5,000 for a hamburger, but it's going down, it used to be $100,000, now it's $5,000, so at some point, uh, it's gonna go down. If it's well, that's going to be the question. Now, remember, when you say artificial, you've got to be careful here. Uh, it's not artificial in the way soy protein is. This is actually chemically meat. It comes from the cells of an animal. Okay, very important. The word artificial is part of the question here. So the very big question in halacha, because this is going to, for sure, going to come down the pike, is when you have laboratory-created meat which comes from the cells of real animals, of kosher animals. It's not, you know, soy protein. It's really, really meat. Number one, there are actually two questions. Number one, Mm -hmm. is it kosher at all? And number two, is it meat at all? But (coughs) you don't get to that until it's kosher. Now, you might say, well, why shouldn't it be kosher? Um, I got the cells from a kosher animal. Yeah, maybe if I got it from a pig, there'd be a problem, but I got it from a cow. Ah, but here's the thing. Avrim menachai. In other words, you took the cells from an animal that was alive that was not shechted. So even if it's a kosher animal, the meat that's produced was not shechted. It's, a, it's like meat or, or a limb that was taken from a live animal even though it was taken on a cellular level. So, there are some opinions that say laboratory meat is totally treif, because it wasn't shechted. Meaning it's not treifa, but it's nevela. In other words, it's aver minachais. That's one view. There is a second view that says that the only thing that's treif are the individual cells that you took from an animal. That I took from an animal. But everything that grew later was not from the animal, and therefore we apply a rule called nullification in 60. Again, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. But the idea basically is, if you have something trafe that's mixed in a much larger volume, so the famous Kashris rule, one of the most important rules in Kashris, is if the kosher part, or the the one that's not problematical, is 60 times or more, the volume of the non-kosher part, the non-kosher part gets nullified. right? It gets cancelled. Simple example, if I have a big, big pot of meat soup that's being cooked, and by accident somebody was carrying their cup of coffee with milk, and a little bit of that cup of coffee splashed into the meat soup. If the amount of coffee with milk, with milk that is, that fell in, is less than one part in 60 of the whole, you can still eat the meat soup. And not only is that true with meat and milk, it's even true with treif. I mean, let's imagine somebody uh, was uh, carrying their, their pork sandwich something fell into the meat, uh, the meat soup or the dairy soup, whatever it is. If there's 60 times, it's going to be okay. So the argument about laboratory meat is this. Yeah, it's true that the cells that you took from the animal are taken from an animal before shechita. But all of those billions of times that were multiplied were grown in the laboratory. They're not from the animal. So as a result we could matur it because of batel vishishim. Now, the counter argument is, you can't say batel vishishim because here, the stuff that grew came from the forbidden thing. It's not like the milk fell into the meat. Here, all of your extra came from the original thing that was forbidden. So, some, so you don't say bitel vishishim where the extra came from the prohibited. Right, So this is the big, big issue about laboratory meat. Now, interestingly enough, the chief rabbinate, there's a company in Israel that wanted to get certification to begin producing laboratory meat. It's not going to be for a few years, but they wanted to get certification. And the chief rabbinate of Israel certified them. They took the position that the laboratory meat, I mean, they made some crazy, eh, one of those political things, that you, you can't call it meat. Okay, in other words, they were worried about people being confused. But putting aside labels and putting aside names, their basic position was, it is not halakhically meat. Well, number one, it's kosher, it's kosher, and it's not halakhically meat, which means you could even have it with dairy. Two things, in other words, well, it, it follows. If it's not considered meat because it didn't come from an animal, was generated in the test tube that would be the same reason why it wouldn't be flechic either.
1: Can I ask a question? Yeah. Can can this cell like original cell can be taken from the like uh, shafted animal like to avoid this problem?
0: Yeah. So that's an interesting question. Uh, So the question is okay so if the only problem with the lab meat uh, is that the cells were taken without the animal being shafted so why can't they take the cells afterwards? Theoretically, that might be possible. The problem basically is that uh, uh, once the cells die, in you know, other words, there's a very small window of opportunity because it is true that even after an animal is killed, there are cells that survive for a while. So if you could get those cells, you'd be in business. But that's kind of hard because it's, you don't have a lot of time. You have like two minutes or... Or whatever it is. But theoretically, you're 100% correct. That would exactly solve the problem. Uh, but the Rappenich was willing to say that even the stuff that was taken before the animal was shechted is going to be in millions of the muscle fibers that are generated. So this is an interesting example of how the old barbaric category of you know, some caveman you know, takes a knife and cuts a leg off an animal uh, can have a modern application in laboratory meat, which is mamish the type type uh type of problem. Now, there's an opposite situation, which is a big leniency, and this is called, I'm introducing a lot of words today, this is uh, called a Ben Pakua. And a Ben Pakua simply means uh, a fetus that is inside a shechted animal. It happens sometimes. Let's say you shech an animal, you shecht a female animal, and there's a baby cow, a calf, inside of the baby animal. For reasons that are not clear to me, under the United States law, you're not allowed to sell uh, that baby as meat, you're not allowed to process it. I'm, I'm not sure why, what the big problem is. But according to halacha, at least, it's... yeah fetus dead. yeah. The, yeah the, well uh, the fetus might be alive but, but, but then it gets killed But, but uh, it cannot be sold as regular meat I'm not sure what the problem is but that's uh, federal law in the United States uh, but according to halakha, it's very fascinating a ben pakua, because it's considered part of the mother does not need to be shechted so if I shecht the mother and we find a fetus Inside of the mother, that animal has to be killed. You can't just eat it, (laughs) obviously. But that animal could be killed any way you want because the shchita of the mother is treated as a shchita of the fetus.
1: Even though it was, like, for example, last day of this pregnancy, and this animal.
0: Yep. Until it comes out. Until it comes out. Until it comes out. Now that also means that theoretically you could create flocks of animals because if you take this Ben Pakua male and you made it with a Ben Pakua female and they have children, none of those children have to be shechted because it comes from an animal that doesn't need to be shechted. Now, it's not clear. There, there,
1: there, is, a guy, there is a guy in
0: Australia. I, I'm not sure what he's hoping to get out of this. There is a guy in Australia who is trying to create flocks of these types of animals uh, he wanted to argue that a ben pakua is not even fleshic which is another way of having artificial meat I, I don't think he's right at all a ben, <laughs> no, pakua, a ben pakua is certainly fleshic the only thing is you don't have to shecht it it's not that it's, you can't eat it with milk or cheese, so he was thinking he'd have this unlimited supply of meat for cheeseburgers uh, that's not going to work, that may work for the laboratory meat, but that's not going to work for the ben pakua so, as far as I know, I, I don't see anything. I mean, the only thing you're saving is shkita. I'm not sure, you know, if that's any significant benefit in that way.
1: But can go back to the laboratory, means, Yeah. If it's taken from a cell of an actual animal, yes. how come it's not considered Yes,
0: Yeah, so the reason is because you took a cell from an animal, and then in a test tube, not in the animal, you multiplied it by 10 million. So the concept would be that that one cell is going to be nullified in all of the laboratory growth, right? All you need is 60, and this is 10 million, right? So certainly that's going to be nullification. That's that's the central uh, issue there.
1: But you did say there's other reasons why we wouldn't be able to eat dairy with that piece of laboratory meat, right?
0: Well, uh... The only reason, I mean, let, let, let me put it this way. If you consider it meat, then, you see, then it's going to be traif. Yeah. You can't have it both ways. Okay. There's no way, logically, that you would call it kosher meat. Mm-hmm. Either it's meat, in which case, it's Avram and Achai, and it's treif, or it's not meat because of batel b'shishim, in which case it's not meat. It can't be kosher meat. However, however... There is an issue that even if you pass and it's not meat, if it looks like meat, it tastes like meat and it's chemically identical to meat, then it might be forbidden to eat it with milk because of appearance's sake. Yeah. Yeah. And that's different than soy. Soy protein, even you know, people know it's not meat. This is I mean this is meat chemically. So it's much more serious than, than soy protein and, and the like. Mm-hmm. So, laboratory, so the Bembakua thing, I think, is a, is a curiosity. That's not going to be a big industry. But the laboratory meat is going to be a big thing. It's going to be a very big thing. For, because it, it does a lot. Environmentally, it actually does a lot. Because with laboratory meat, <coughs> you need far, far less cattle. Uh, cattle, number one, are a source of great pollution, part of the global warming thing with the gas. And they also eat up a lot. Uh, for every pound, <coughs> I think every pound of beef, I don't have the exact numbers, but it requires something like five to 10 pounds of grain. Now, if you didn't, that means, if, for every cow you don't have, you have 10 pounds, up to 10 pounds more of grain to feed people. So, if you could satisfy people's meat by creating this meat in the test tube, you would actually have a much smaller cattle industry and that would conserve uh, a lot of uh, water and a lot of uh, food uh, for people. So there is a actually, environmentally, the uh, laboratory-grown meat has a lot going for it. But as I say, there are kashru's problems, but the rabbinate here was willing to take the position. And not that everybody agrees. The fact that the rabbinate says something doesn't mean that that's gonna be the (laughs) psaq, but at least they were willing to uh, permit it in in that way. Okay. So that's uh, the laboratory meat, and Minachai, and the like. <clears throat> now let me just mention two more things about kosher food preparation. Uh, this is before you get it to the kitchen. And that is, okay, you shechted your animal. You check the lungs, not a treifa. But there are still three parts of the animal that have to be removed. There are parts of a kosher animal that you're not allowed to eat. And uh, part number one is blood. Part number two is chilev. I'll I'll explain that. And part number three is gid ha These are three parts that have to be removed before you could eat a kosher animal that was shechted. Uh, I'm going to save blood for the last because blood is is the latest thing that's done. Chilev. Chilev are fats. Now you may say, what do you mean fat? F- of course fat is kosher. What's schmaltz? I mean, uh, meat has fat. Well, the answer is there actually are two types of fat in animals. Uh, one is the fat that you commonly see, whether it's in a chicken or a beef or whatever it is, and that fat is kosher. That's called schumann, fat. But then there's another type of fat that you'll never see because a kosher butcher removes it. That's, you may not even know what it looks like, and that's called chelav. That's like a darker suet what the British call suet uh, that is commonly around organs like the kidney and the liver, right, and the like. And that fat is actually treif, and that has to be removed by a kosher butcher before the, it's not removed by the shochet, but a kosher butcher removes it. And that's a skill, actually. That, that's why one of the reasons people sometimes think, oh, who cares? how good the butcher is, as long as the meat comes from a reliable source. Let's assume the meat comes from a reliable shochet. So a person might say, who cares about the butcher? The butcher is no better than, uh, all he's doing is passing it on. The answer is no. There's something very, very, very important that a kosher butcher does. A kosher butcher has to remove the chalif. There's an isr doh that they eat chalef, so it has to be very, very carefully removed. Okay, so when you buy prepackaged meat under Hashkacha, so what the Hashkacha is telling you is not only was it Shechted, but the Chalif was removed. I mean, that's what, that's what they're telling you. Now, that's number one, Chalif. Number two, going back to Yaakov Avinu, if you remember with Yaakov Avinu, when Yaakov Avinu fought with the angel, so uh, the angel smote him on the thigh and Yaakov was limping because the angel dislocated his sciatic nerve. So this is called Gid HaNasheh, and we do not eat the Gid HaNasheh, the sciatic nerve, uh, to commemorate Yaakov's victory over the angel. Now, the sciatic nerve is actually a very, very large nerve that's in the hindquarters, the back quarters of the animal, that has many, many branches, like there's a central core, then it branches off into smaller branches, (laughs) and then smaller branches of branches, branches of branches, branches of branches. The gid ha must be totally removed from the hindquarters, or you can't eat that part of the animal. In Yiddish, that's called trebering, In Hebrew, that's called Nikor. Nikor is to uh, get it out. And that is a very, very... It's also a job of a butcher. That is a very, very difficult task. Uh, And because of this, Ashkenazim mainly have the custom that they no longer practice Nikor of the hindquarter. That actually means that when a kosher animal is certified, they only sell the front half of the animal. The back half of the animal is sold to Goyim. Meaning, theoretically, that back half is perfectly good if you would remove the Gid Sha. But because it is so labor-intensive, they simply sell it to Goyim. Svardim, many Svardim, they maintain the tradition of Nikor and they still practice it. And some Ashkenazi communities practice it as well. Now, this explains an interesting thing. This is why, in America, it'll be very difficult to get certain cuts of meat because they come from the back half, the hind quarter of the animal. For example, a sirloin steak. Right? You cannot get... I'm not saying you can't, but it would be hard. It's hard to get a kosher sirloin steak because a sirloin steak is a cut from the hindquarter. Filet mignon, which many say is the best of the steaks. Uh, you cannot get a kosher filet mignon because it's from the hindquarter. Now, what happens is this. In countries where there's a shortage of meat, they will do Nikar, which is why in Israel, they do it.
1: But justified. So and... No, even Ashkenazim
0: do it. So, so in, ra- is, in Israel, you can get these cuts. Now, overall, the meat in Israel is of poor quality anyway. That, that happens to be true. <laughs> but, but it happens to be the case. You can get certain cuts here that you could not get in the U.S.
1: If you're Ashkenazi, can you buy the meat that's been shechted? Yes,
0: a- yes, you can. You can. Yes, you can. You can rely on their work. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is called Nikor or Nikor achurayim. Nikor achurayim is the full term. Being Menakir, removing the Gid HaNashe achurayim in the hind quarter. Okay. Alright, um, so I mentioned Chelev, which has to be... always has to be removed because Chelev is both in the front and in the back, so... What's the
1: reason
0: for that? For what? For Chelev? Yeah. So it's interesting. It's not because it's bad, but <coughs> when a carbon was brought on the altar... The chilev was always burnt on the altar. Uh, so therefore it's actually sacred a little bit. And that's why uh, you're not allowed to eat it. So there's chilev. There's gid hanasheh, And the third thing is blood. Right? We are not allowed to eat blood. Uh, the Torah says five places that blood is prohibited. <coughs> now blood is removed a very specific way. Blood is removed by salting meat. Meat or chicken. You cover it with salt, uh, and the salt draws out the blood. Then the meat is rinsed off, and then it's considered kosher. Now, the thing about salting is this Uh, it used to be, until around 50 years ago, that every Jewish housewife had to salt her meat all the time. I mean, all meat was sold non kosher. Non
1: kosher.
0: And in every home that was keeping kosher, they would have to salt. So, around, I don't know, 50 years ago, maybe less, uh, a new invention came that was like sliced bread, in which most meat was pre kosher, like today. Today, when you buy chicken, for the most part, unless it's kaporas, unless you had it it for you, the chicken is salted already. I don't have to worry about it. Chicken is salted, the meat is salted. Pre salted meat. That's a great idea. It saves a lot of work, but something's missing. That means generations of Jewish kids, particularly women, but you know men too, grew up without ever seeing how to salt meat, so it became almost a lost art. So I know a family that they make a point that uh, every year they have at least one chicken that uh, they buy. Or maybe they get the chicken shechted so they can actually salt it themselves so in order mm. that they should remember it's a similar issue to you know, Um Generations of kids have grown up in America not knowing you're not allowed to carry on Shabbos because there's an Eriv. So they never had this experience that you can't carry from inside the house to outside. So I know when I was a rabbi in Silver Spring, so we had an Eriv, and, and we had a wonderful Arif inspector. He's not alive anymore, but uh, for some reason, one Shabbos a year, the Eriv was always down. And you know we didn't figure out why, why, why does it always happened. But somebody told me, although well, I don't know if it's true, that he wanted to bedafka uh, uh, passel the error of one Shabbos a year, so people should remember you're not allowed to carry <laughs> one Shabbos, like a deliberate idea. Yeah, I, I don't. I, it probably wasn't the way he did it, but whatever, whatever it would be, right? Uh, now, uh, the thing about salting that you need to know is that there is one piece of meat. That is so filled with blood that regular salting does not help, and that's liver. A liver is so suffused with blood that a regular salting of the liver would not help.
1: So to salt it again.
0: So, right, so as a result, you salt it a little bit and you broil it. Broiling is another way of drawing out the blood. And that's a special law of liver because the liver has uh, so much blood that the salt alone would not take out the blood. Now, one thing that bothers people is this stuff. I mean, I buy chicken, I buy meat. You cook it, and you see red juice coming out. You see red juice coming out. It looks like blood. What's going on? I mean, this was salted. It's not supposed to be blood. So what do you do about all of this red juice? What is, what is that significance there? So here you have to have the good news. You have to know that halacha says any fluid that remains in the chicken after the shiur of malicha, the shiur of malicha is a half an hour, meaning once the meat has been covered in salt for a half an hour and rinsed off, any liquid that remains is no longer Halachically blood. Now, I understand that from a chemical perspective, that makes no sense. If you took that liquid under a microscope, for sure you would find it's a mixture of water and blood. So this is an example of where halakha has definitions that are not the same as the scientific definition. That red stuff in your chicken is blood. But halachically it's not blood, because anything that remains after the shear of malicha is no longer prohibited, right? So so don't worry about the red fluids.
1: Is this the same for
0: red meat? The same as what? For red meat. Yeah, same even for red meat, same thing for red meat, that's right. As long as it was salted. Now if it wasn't salted, then yeah, it is blood. And you have a you have a very big a very big problem. Okay, now uh, there is one rule again. Malikah is a very complicated set of halachas, and as I say, for most of us it's not that relevant, I mean, we should know it, but you know most of us are not going to have to do it that much. But let me just mention that there is an important rule that if meat uh, was allowed to remain three days, so that's seventy-two hours, without being salted, the salting is not going to work anymore. Uh, now the whole question is uh, does that include meat that's refrigerated Now in the old, uh, this is a very big issue because South America is a major source for kosher slaughter and the problem is to get from South America to here can sometimes take over a week and the meat is salted here so some have a big problem with South American meat because it's being salted more than 72 hours after slaughtering and some opinions say when it's uh more than 72 hours after slaughtering you can't salt it anymore the the, the, the blood is too enmeshed or embedded but the counter argument that we're making on is that if the uh, if the meat is being fr- is frozen that stops the clock right so therefore you know the mice said uh, we could be so mixed. Okay? So, again, I, I don't want to go over all the laws of, of salting, but uh, just be aware of this, right? So, this is the last preparation, meaning there are three things that you got to remove from a kosher animal after shechita. you got to remove the blood. you got to remove the chilev. you got to remove the gid hanasheh. Uh, it used to be that the chilev and the gid were taken care of by the butcher, and the blood was taken care of by the housewife. Today, both the chaylev and the blood are taken care of by the butcher. And in terms of Giran Hashem, Ashkenazim don't even do it at all, except in places where meat is, is scarce. Would
1: yeah. What have to be written on a package to know that this meat is salted, like malilo or something? Yeah,
0: uh, yes, it should be. The truth is, overwhelmingly it is today, but, but it should say in the package. It does, I should say. Okay.
1: It
0: should say. The like, or something? Maluch, yeah, yeah. Okay. And, or, yeah.
1: Um, so I have a question, and maybe you're going to get into this as we continue in class in the next weeks, but it is related to, like, meat. Why is chicken poultry viewed as meat the way that red meat is and not fish as?
0: Yeah, that is, that is a good question, because uh, fish, on the other hand, is not meat for any purpose at all, right? Uh, chicken or any, any type of bird, dove, you know, uh, is considered meat. So the truth is, um, it's really considered to be meat rabbinically, meaning under Torah law, you would be allowed to have chicken and milk. But the rabbis thought it would be too confusing with meat, and therefore they treat it as the same. So the bottom line is we do treat it like meat, but that's not on a Torah level, actually. Okay. Okay, uh, in fact, there are, there are a lot of mysteries here. You know, Kashrus has its own mysteries. For example, why is milk milchuk and not fleshek? I mean, milk comes from a cow. Why are eggs parif? right? Eggs come from a chicken. Why is honey kosher? It comes from a treif animal. A bee, a bee is a treif animal. You can't eat bees, even if you want to, right? So there are, within the laws of Kashrus, certain conundrums, certain contradictions that everybody knows eggs are pariv, everybody knows that milk is dairy, and everybody knows that honey is kosher, but logically, it's not always. Mm. In fact, there are a lot of things. In breakfast, there are problems. Chocolate. A chocolate is made from the cocoa bean. A chocolate is round cocoa with other things mixed in. Now, cocoa is a bean that grows on a tree. Now, the bracha that you make on something that grows on a tree is borei pri,
1: right?
0: So why do you make a shahakol on chocolate? You should make borei pri on chocolate because it comes from a fruit. It comes from the fruit of a cocoa tree. Right? That's another, that's another question. So uh, you're going to find as you go through halacha that sometimes uh, we don't have a full explanation. Of why things work, in that in that uh, particular particular way.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, uh, any any questions about uh, so far? All right, so, so we we covered a lot today. Behematameya, the Glad Kosher, laboratory meat, gelatin, and then uh, chaylev very quickly. across course, chaylev, gid and dam, and blood, and the like. One thing about dam. I'm just finished about dam. Uh, Blood of animals is prohibited, but blood of fish is permitted. Sometimes uh, you see a fish; there may be some. If you catch a fish, there may be blood around there, and the like. What about human blood? Now, here, here's the interesting thing. <laughs> you know, in a way, I should be scared. I, I should be a little reluctant to bring this up. You know, one of the great, great anti-Semitic tsarists that Jews have had for hundreds and hundreds of years was the so-called blood libel that the uh, Jews were accused of using Christian blood to make their matzah, to mix in with their matzah. Yes. And as a result, uh, over hundreds and hundreds of years, there were pogroms against the Jewish people. Jews were killed around this time uh, because of the blood libel. Now, you might think, oh, blood libel, that goes back, you know, 500 years ago. No, in Russia, there was a big, big trial, the Mendel Baylis trial, like the beginning of the 1900s in which he was on trial for this blood libel, and he had to have a whole defense to to, to acquit him and the like. And what got me is that people are writing about it even today. I I didn't have the color. I mean, somebody sends me uh, a whole article, written like now, written like two days ago, that Jews, you know, use uh, Gentile blood for Pesach. He says, am I going to respond? I mean, you know, am I in Russia? You know, what am I going to respond? I respond to a blood libel, but people are still saying it. To this day. So for me to talk about human blood might be a little uncomfortable. uh, But here is the interesting point. Halachically, human blood is not forbidden. Halachically. uh, Because the Torah only prohibits animal blood. And humans are not animals. But rabbinically, it is asur because of marisayin. If somebody sees you drinking a cup of blood, it's human (laughs) blood, They're not going to know, right? So the bottom line is, it's us, sir. But the interesting thing is, it only applies if it's left if it left your mouth. So, an issue that a person might face sometimes is this: Let's say you have bleeding gums. Mind right? you, got you had um, periodontal, periodontal disease or whatever, gingivitis, or wisdom teeth, mm-hmm. or wisdom teeth, right? Bleeding gums. So sometimes you'll find, or you go to a dentist for anything, right? So there's blood in your mouth, right? So you rinse it out, you spit it out. But can you swallow? Can I swallow water Mm -hmm. if there's some blood in it? So the interesting halacha is, as long as it's in your mouth, it didn't leave your mouth, you can swallow it, even though it's blood. Once it left your mouth, you can. not So the Talmud gives an example. If you bite into a piece of bread, and there's a little bit of blood on that bread, you gotta cut away that Mm -hmm. little bit of piece because you're not allowed to take the blood back into your mouth. But as long as it didn't leave your mouth, uh, you're permitted to swallow it. Okay, so that would be uh, relevant uh, if someone has blood in their mouth after a dental procedure or or whatever it is.
1: What if you're drinking water and some blood is in the water, but then it's only like 160th, Oh, okay.
0: So so that's an interesting question. Uh, Blood is like any other trafe thing, and blood can be nullified. One in sixty. But but the interesting question is, do we apply the rule of nullification when something is visible? Meaning, like this: if you can see the coloration in the water, Mm -hmm. then some say sixty is not going to help you. Sixty would help you if there's no visual uh, residue that you have. How does the moel work around um, the bris? Oh, okay. So that's a very good question. So the moel, right, uh, the traditional way of doing a bris is that after the moel cuts, the moel actually sucks the blood out of the wound with his mouth. Now, a lot of modern moel, and for health reasons, I mean, not their health, they're concerned about not passing any virus to the baby, they use a tube, a pipette. So they don't actually suck it. But the standard, uh, traditional way, maybe not standard, but the traditional way was sucking it with their mouth, now that is blood. And The answer has to be that they have to spit it out and rinse their mouth before they swallow, because the law of all treif is only if you swallow. So uh, the mole has to be very careful not to swallow, that's, that's correct, which you, know, you wouldn't want to do anyway. Okay, so maybe we'll stop here. Um, we still have uh, one more class before forum, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. Alrighty. righty. You be well. Have a good week. <laughs> thank you, Thank you.
1: Thank you <laughs>